Content warning. The following program may contain descriptions of violence and or sexual assault that may be upsetting to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. The upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who perform heinous acts. I was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. Grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is The Upper Left Corner. murders. But first, let's head to our PNW town profile. Auburn, Washington is a city that is mostly in King County, with a portion falling in Pierce County. As of the 2010 census, the population was just over 70,000. Auburn is considered a suburb of Seattle and is the 15th largest city in Washington state. Before the non-Indigenous settlers arrived in the Green River Valley in the 1850s, the area was home to the Muckleshoot people, who were temporarily driven out by the Indian Wars later that decade. Several settler families arrived in the 1860s, including Levi Ballard, who set up a homestead between the Green and White Rivers. Ballard filed for a plat to establish a town in February 1886, naming it Slaughter for an officer who was slain during the Puget Sound Indian Wars of 1855. I'm adding this word to my list of topics to cover down the road right now. Slaughter was incorporated on June 13, 1891, but it got a much-needed name change in 1893. The state legislature made the change to Auburn after newer residents disliked the name and its connection to the word slaughter, especially since the town's hotel had been named Slaughterhouse. The name Auburn was chosen in honor of Auburn, New York, for the area's shared reliance on hops farming. Some notable people who hail from Auburn are Dick Scobie, 
who was a NASA pilot and astronaut. He was killed at the age of 46 while commanding the Space Shuttle Challenger in, in 1986. NFL player Danny Shelton was drafted in the first round of the 2015 NFL Draft to the Cleveland Browns. And finally, my favorite, none other than the crooner of Baby Got Back, Sir Mix-a-Lot himself. Now on to the story. In 1986, Sue Snow was a 40-year-old bank manager living in Auburn, Washington with her new husband of six months, Paul, and her 15-year-old daughter, Haley. She had built a nice life for herself despite dropping out of high school to marry young and giving birth to two daughters. She had worked her way up to being a bank manager at Puget Sound National Bank south of Seattle. At around 6 a.m. on June 11, 1986, Sue woke up with a headache and sleepily took two Excedrin capsules before getting ready for her workday. The new bottle of Excedrin had already been opened that day by Sue's husband, Paul, who had taken two on his way to work as a truck driver for his arthritis. She went to take a shower and her daughter heard a thud from the bathroom. Haley ran to check on her mom, thinking she may have slipped in the shower. She found her mother unresponsive on the bathroom floor with a faint pulse and called 911. Sue was transported to Harborview Medical Center and Haley attempted to contact everyone in her family, which in the 80s was obviously more difficult. She was able to get a hold of her stepfather's dispatcher, who was able to drive to the Safeway Distribution Center that Paul was loading at and gave him a ride to Harborview. Paul didn't seem too concerned as the full message of what was going on hadn't been relayed to him, and he even ran back to his truck to grab his book that he was reading for the waiting room. Once he got to Harborview, he was acting very casual until the doctor came to tell him that Sue was brain dead. Haley had been able to get a hold of Sue's twin sister named Sarah, but to Sarah's devastation, Paul decided to pull the plug before she was able to say her goodbyes. She and her husband lived in Colorado and immediately got on a plane to get to Sue, but Paul had decided to pull the plug before she got there. Once they landed at SeaTac, they went directly to her sister and brother-in-law's house. When Sarah got there, she was shocked to see Paul in a Hawaiian shirt and shorts acting like everything was fine. She thought there must have been a mistake. At first, doctors suspected an aneurysm in the brain but found no evidence of internal bleeding. The symptoms also matched an overdose, but Haley insisted her mom didn't drink or smoke, much less take drugs, so an autopsy was ordered to find a cause of death. During the autopsy, assistant medical examiner Janet Miller smelled the scent of bitter almonds, which is a telltale sign of cyanide poisoning. Lab work would later confirm this. I found this super interesting. Some people are able to detect cyanide by smell and some people cannot. It's a genetic trait that about 50% of people can detect cyanide by smell and 50% cannot. Luckily, Janet Miller was in the cyanide smelling category. The focus then became on finding the source of Susan's cyanide poisoning. Sue's family was immediately under suspicion, and they were all questioned about the poisoning. Sue and her husband had been married for only six months, and this was his fourth marriage, and he had already had an affair, but they were working through it. They raided Paul's Kenworth truck and found pills but no Excedrin. He did admit to using amphetamines on occasion. He had two life insurance policies on his wife, and the day Sue died, it was garbage day, so authorities thought they could have planned to poison her on that day so that the evidence would be taken by the garbage truck that morning. So obviously, he became suspect number one, and they went to work to connect Paul to the purchase of cyanide. He came under even more suspicion when two months after Sue's death, he had already moved on with a flight attendant he met while on a trip to California. He married her less than six months after Sue had died. Soon after, the FDA announced to the public that the bottle of extra-strength Excedrin capsules found at Sue's home had contained cyanide. 
Out of the 60 pills, three had been laced with cyanide, and by chance, Sue's husband Paul did not get a laced capsule when he took two for his arthritis that morning, although the authorities weren't sure they could trust that he really did take them. Remember, it was trash day. The FBI was notified and 60 agents were assigned to Sue's case, and the manufacturer, Bristol Myers, began a nationwide recall of extra-strength Excedrin capsules. A consortium of drug companies that were alarmed by the product tampering posted a $300,000 reward for information leading to the capture of the person responsible. Cyanide is shockingly easy to come by. You can buy it from chemical plants. High school chemistry classes use it, as well as jewelry stores and photography stores. It can be crushed up to resemble salt and is completely undetectable when placed in a capsule. A small amount is deadly, and at the time, you could buy cyanide in Seattle for about $11 per pound. The reason the drug companies immediately panicked was because this was happening only four years after the Chicago Tylenol murders, in which someone had laced bottles of Tylenol with cyanide, killing seven innocent people, including a child and three members from one family who had all taken Tylenol from the same bottle. At that time, Johnson & Johnson distributed warnings and halted Tylenol production and advertising. They eventually issued a nationwide recall of Tylenol products, which was an estimated 31 million bottles that were in circulation with a retail value of over $100 million, which would be over $265 million in today's money. They also began running ads warning the nation to throw out their bottles of Tylenol. They were praised for their willingness to take action, especially since they took such a monetary loss to save lives. The Chicago Tylenol murders are still unsolved to this day, and that unsolved case has haunted the FBI. So four years later, when Sue Snow died from cyanide-laced Excedrin capsules, Bristol Myers followed in the footsteps of Johnson & Johnson. The FBI did a major sweep of the grocery and pharmacy shelves in King County, And that search turned up another tainted bottle from Johnny's Market in Kent, Washington, that had the same lot number as the bottle that Sue had in her house. The authorities released the specific lot number and warned people to check their medicine cabinets. Hysteria began to grow in Washington, and this story became national news. About a week after Sue's death, Stella Nickel, a 42-year-old security screener at SeaTac Airport, called police to let them know that she had two bottles of Excedrin that matched the lot number that killed Sue. When police arrived, they were shocked to learn that Stella's 52-year-old husband, Bruce Nickel, had died two weeks earlier. On June 5, 1986, Bruce had complained of a headache and took four Excedrin. He went outside to sit on his patio and called for Stella moments later, saying he felt like he was going to pass out. When she came to check on him, he had collapsed and was unresponsive. Stella had called for emergency services, and two volunteer firefighters, a couple, who lived nearby, responded to the call first. As the Nichols lived in a trailer park, it was a little confusing to find the trailer. Typically, in an emergency situation, someone will be out to wave down the ambulance. However, no one was outside, but they did notice a woman peeking out past the curtains in one of the trailers. This turned out to be Stella, who made no apparent effort to flag down help. The husband of the paramedic pair even commented, what the hell is she even doing? By the time they got to Bruce, he was barely breathing and his neck and face were cherry red. He was taken to Harborview, where he died later that day. His death had been ruled natural causes because Bruce's original autopsy had come back that he had died of emphysema, and at that point, he had already been buried. But luckily, Bruce was an organ donor, so a blood sample was kept on hand that they were able to test for cyanide. The blood test came back positive shortly thereafter. To an increasingly jittery public, it seemed as if a random killer was on the loose after the second case of Excedrin laced with cyanide poison came out. 
Both of the bottles from the Nichols home were contaminated. Stella said she purchased one in Auburn and one at Johnny's Market in Kent. Along with the cyanide, the FBI crime lab found that the capsules also contained flecks of an unknown green substance. Further testing showed this was an algae side used in home aquariums, and they were even able to narrow it down to the brand. It was called Algae Destroyer. Investigators tried to find a connection between Bruce Nickel and Sue Snow, but came up empty-handed. Initial suspicions were directed at the Excedrin manufacturer Bristol-Myers. Sue's husband, Paul, and Bruce's wife, Stella, filed wrongful death lawsuits against the company. The FDA inspected the Morrisville, North Carolina plant where the tainted lots had been packaged, but no traces of cyanide were found. The press hounded Stella, Paul, and their families, and the police began to get leads from people they referred to as the crazies. One such story that had to be ruled out was a man who had called the tip line and said that he had purchased a bottle of medicine in Ellensburg, Washington, and was then followed by a suspicious vehicle that he said could have been a crazy killer on his way to Spokane, and that when he stopped for another break along the way, another bottle of medicine had been placed in his vehicle, probably by the suspicious driver. This was never substantiated, but this was just one of the many wild leads authorities had to rule out in their investigation to find the truth. On June 18th, Bristol-Myers recalled all Excedrin capsules in the U.S., and on June 24th, a bottle of Anison 3 laced with cyanide was found at the same pay-and-save store that Sue Snow had bought her Excedrin. Seen as how another brand was now involved, on June 27th, 1986, the state of Washington put a 90-day ban on the sale of non-prescription capsule medications. But the more they looked into Stella Nichols' past, the more questions they began to have. Stella was born in Colton, Oregon in August of 1943. Stella was the youngest of five children born to her mother, Cora Lee, and her abusive father. Her childhood was marred with extreme poverty and abuse. Not long after she was born, her father got drunk and angry and chased his wife and children around to their property while wildly firing his shotgun at them. Luckily, no one was injured, but that was the final straw in the marriage. Stella doesn't even have a memory of her father. After the divorce, her mother went to work at the local mill. This was just after World War II had ended, and her mother was the only woman to work at the mill. This left all of the children to fend for themselves during their mother's long shifts. Not long after she had started, one of the siblings had a mishap while preparing food that caused a cooking oil explosion. Five-year-old Stella was burned badly. She stayed at a Portland hospital for months as she underwent several skin grafts and recovered. Her mother later landed a job with a trucking company as a driver and eventually married the owner. Not long after, Stella's baby brother Joe was born. This marriage became abusive as well and ended in divorce. In 1953, tragedy struck the family again when Cora Lee went out berry picking to provide for her family. Ten-year-old Stella began to cook a meal on the stove and yet another mishap with the oil occurred. This time, the whole kitchen caught on fire. Baby Joe was sitting in his high chair and in a panic, he was left in the burning room. Joe passed away and Stella and her sister were hospitalized for burns. Stella was heartbroken and felt responsible for her brother's death. By the age of 16, Stella gave birth to her daughter, Cynthia, and two years later, she gave birth to a son that she gave up for adoption. She went on to marry a man named Bob Strong and moved to Southern California with him. In November of 1966, she gave birth to her second daughter, Leah. For some reason, she had a very strong attachment with her firstborn, but with Leah, it was a different story. She fell pregnant soon after the birth and opted for an abortion, as she didn't want any more children, and her husband would later say he was fine with it because he didn't think the baby was his anyways. Stella was known to run around with other men regularly, and the marriage ended in divorce. 
She began to have various legal troubles, including a fraud conviction in 1968, a charge the following year for beating her daughter Cynthia with a curtain rod, and a forgery conviction in 1971. She served six months in jail for the fraud charge and was ordered into counseling for the abuse charge. That is such a 1971 punishment. Can you imagine someone being charged for fraud and beating their kid with a curtain rod in 2021? And you get jail time for the fraud, but oh, just go to some counseling for beating your child. Anyways, the FBI found out about her criminal history after running a background check after Bruce's death. Stella met Bruce in 1974. He was a heavy equipment operator with a drinking habit that was said to have suited Stella's lifestyle. In fact, when describing Stella, a neighbor characterized her as a washed-up honky-tonk girl. During the course of their 12-year marriage, Bruce had entered rehab and gave up drinking. Stella resented this, saying he was now boring. Their marriage struggled after Bruce got sober, and Stella continued spending lots of time at the bars and cultivated a home aquarium as a new hobby. She even dreamed of buying the lot next to their house to open a tropical fish store. Ten years into their marriage, things were not going well. They lived in a trailer park next to Stella's elderly mother, who needed care, and now her grown daughter Cynthia, who had gone through a divorce, had moved in with them with their children. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Let's take a minute to talk about teeth. Between my AM love of coffee and my PM love of red wine, my teeth definitely need some attention to keep them whiter and brighter. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about my new sponsor, Smile Brilliant. If you're like me, you're confused by all of the teeth whitening products on the market. But since taking Smile Brilliant on as a sponsor, I've learned that the number one dentist recommended product is the custom fitted tray. However, they're very, very costly at the dentist office. That's why the best option is Smile Brilliant. With their lab's direct process, you can have a custom-fitted teeth whitening tray at a fraction of the price without a single visit to the dentist. Using an exact model of your teeth, Smile Brilliant's lab technicians will handcraft your trays to ensure the best possible results. Simply order the system at smilebrilliant.com, make your dental impressions at home, and return them to Smile Brilliant using the prepaid envelope provided. In a matter of a week, your trays will be back in the mail. As an upper left corner listener, enjoy 30% off site-wide at smilebrilliant.com using code UPPERLEFT, all one word. That code is also good on their other amazing products, such as their night guards or electric toothbrushes. Head on over to smilebrilliant.com today. Hey, it's old-timey crimey. Do you like true crime? Do you like history? Do you think murder's just better in black and white? Come join us on Old Timey Crimey, where every week we sit down and talk about a crime history forgot. Or maybe a crime that history can't get enough of. From the classics, like Jack the Ripper, to the crimes you may never have heard of, like the Tottenham Outrage. We dig deep into the archives to give you the details you won't get anywhere else. And we'll probably use some filthy words in the process. Because the good old days weren't always so good. New episodes every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. That's old, timey, crimey.
your business deserves the same expertise as that of a Fortune 500 company. If you need a CIO-level service, why hire a full-time staff member at $250,000 a year when you can get this on-demand service for fractions of the cost? As your CIO on demand, we'll give you the steps you need to take so as to minimize interruption to your business and profitability and provide you and your business with training and education to prevent future attacks. To get an efficiency review for your business today, contact us at www.ee-services.com. And now back to the story. With contamination of the Excedrin at the factory being ruled out, authorities began to focus on how they could have become contaminated between the factory and store shelves. At the time, Excedrin was packaged in a plastic bottle with the mouth of the bottle sealed with foil and the lid secured with plastic wrap. All of the capsules that had been tampered with were the type that were in two pieces with powder inside. Both Paul Webking and Stella Nickel were asked to take a polygraph, which Webking agreed to, but he did complain to the press later about his treatment by the FBI. Nickel declined the polygraph, stating her doctor said she was too shaken up to pass a polygraph. At this time, investigators became suspicious of Stella for multiple reasons. First off, she was in possession of two of the five bottles that were contaminated, and her story was that she had purchased them at different times in different locations. They did not believe that would happen by chance. However, they couldn't answer why she would have come forward to have her husband's death looked into if his death had been ruled natural causes. She would have been getting away with poisoning her husband if no one knew about it. Their suspicions grew when detectives uncovered more circumstantial evidence pointing to Stella. She had taken out a $76,000 life insurance policy on her husband with an additional $100,000 payout if the death was ruled accidental. It then came to light that she had disputed Bruce's cause of death with the doctors before Sue had died, as they had ruled it natural causes, so she would not be getting the accidental death money from the life insurance. As they looked into the life insurance policy, they discovered that Bruce's signature had been forged on the forms. Stories of Stella's behavior after Bruce's death also raised red flags. The day after Bruce's death, Stella drove to eastern Washington to inform Bruce's parents of his death. Stella went to Bruce's cousin, Dick Nickel, to help her break the bad news to the elderly couple. Dick had been the sheriff in Wenatchee, Washington for 20 years, but was now retired. She woke him up that morning by pounding on his door and told him the bad news. She asked if he could go with her to notify Bruce's parents. He agreed, and they drove across town to their apartment. However, Stella didn't even get out of the car once they arrived and left it to Dick to break the news to his aunt and uncle. Bruce's parents were heartbroken. They had tried to conceive for 14 years but were unable to. They adopted Bruce from a Seattle adoption agency and they were said to have loved him so much. His dad owned an apple orchard and his mother was a second grade teacher. Once they had him, they tried to give him everything. They learned their baby, who had been adopted at one week old, was allergic to cow's milk. So his dad bought him a goat and faithfully milked it every morning so Bruce had milk to drink. He grew up in an orchard, had a collie, and all kinds of animals. His parents had given him an ideal childhood. However, Bruce took up drinking at the age of 15, which caused most of the trouble in his life. For example, Stella was his fifth wife. At the funeral, Stella's behavior also raised eyebrows. She didn't even seem to shed a tear. Dick Nickel had told the funeral director at one point that he thought she might have had something to do with Bruce's death. Investigators were also trying to verify that Stella had purchased algae destroyer from a local fish store for her home aquarium. A store employee knew Stella because she was a regular customer and confirmed that Stella used the specific brands that the FBI had found small flecks of in the cyanide-laced Excedrin. Because she was very memorable 
as the lady with the belt attached to her purse. So even when the employee was out of eyesight, he knew Stella had walked in just by hearing the bell. Authorities speculated that the algae side had mixed with the cyanide when she used the same bowl to crush them up without washing it in between. Finally, one of the most damning pieces of evidence came in the form of a letter that Stella had written to one of her many debt collectors. She and Bruce were in such deep debt, all of their possessions were in danger of being foreclosed or repossessed. Before Bruce had died, Stella wrote a letter to one of the companies she owed, asking for another chance to pay because her husband was now out of the picture and she would be coming into some money. She set up a payment plan and of course once the insurance money started rolling in, she was able to pay it off. Stella finally consented to a polygraph in November of 1986 that she failed. Investigators began to focus on her even farther. However, they were having a hard time linking Stella to the purchase of cyanide. At this time, they had a solid theory that Stella had poisoned her husband as an insurance-motivated murder. She was expecting $176,000 in life insurance money, but was disappointed when his death was ruled natural causes, so she wouldn't receive the extra $100,000 payout. The $76,000 would have paid off her debts, but she would not have enough to open her tropical fish store. So she placed more tainted bottles on the shelves so that when a pattern arose, she would be able to come forward and his death would be ruled accidental and she would get the extra $100,000. The fact that there were two other bottles on the shelves is terrifying. Thank goodness the medical examiner had smelled the cyanide from Sue or else more people could have died from Stella's greediness. Authorities continued to investigate the case, and in 1987, Stella's adult daughter Cynthia, who she had been arrested for beating with a curtain rod as a child, came forward and gave police some new information. She told them how Stella had repeatedly stated she wanted her husband dead. She thought he was boring after getting sober, preferring to stay home and watch television, aka my dream, rather than go out to the bars. Cynthia claimed she had even told her that she had tried previously to poison Bruce with foxglove, which is a poisonous plant. When that failed, she started researching other methods to poison him at the library and came across cyanide. She also bragged to her daughter about what she could do with the insurance money if Bruce were dead, like opening the fish store of her dreams in the trailer park. The book Deadly Harvest was marked as overdue in library records, indicating that Stella had borrowed the book but never returned it, which is right on brand for Stella. The FBI identified her fingerprints on cyanide-related pages on a number of the books she had checked out from the library. On December 9, 1987, Stella Nichol was indicted by a federal grand jury on five counts of product tampering, including two which resulted in the deaths of Sue Snow and Bruce Nichol, and she was arrested the same day. In April 1988, she went on trial and was found guilty on May 9th after five days of jury deliberation. Stella's legal team filed a motion for a mistrial claiming jury tampering and judicial misconduct, but the motion was denied and she was sentenced to two 90-year terms for the charges relating to the deaths of Sue and Bruce, and three 10-year terms for the other product tampering charges. All sentences were to run concurrently, and the judge ordered her to pay a small fine and forfeit her remaining assets to the families of her victims. Stella continued to maintain her innocence after her trial. She filed an appeal based on jury tampering and judicial misconduct issues, which was rejected by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit in August of 1989. A second appeal began in 2001 with the assistance of the Innocence Project and two private detectives. When I first read this, I thought Stella was just grasping at anything she could, but after some research, it turns out there were some legit problems with the case. 
She was completely broke in prison, and the Innocent Project and two private detectives donated their time to helping her case, and here is what they came up with. First off, Stella accused the FBI of withholding information from the defense during the trial. She also made the point that Bruce had just been officially hired on by the state as an equipment operator, and if he would have passed a physical, he would have had another state-provided life insurance policy worth $25,000. Why would she not have waited for that to take effect before killing Bruce? Also, there was an extremely problematic juror. This female juror was accused of leaking things to the press during the trial, such as where other jurors stood. This same juror had also not disclosed that she herself had benefited from a lawsuit against a manufacturer where at first tampering was suspected. This woman was a realtor, and about a month after the Excedrin poisonings, she bit into a goldfish cracker at an open house and found a pill inside. She called poison control, and luckily there was no cyanide in the cracker or the pill, and it was determined to be an ibuprofen. She settled the lawsuit for $500, but when asked for comment about it, Pepperidge Farms, the makers of the goldfish cracker, stated that there is no way an ibuprofen pill could have made it through the machine that grinds the crackers before baking, and basically stopped just short of saying that the juror may have made it up. She seemed to love all of the press attention, so I wouldn't put it past her. When questioned in court about why she didn't mention this during jury selection, she asked why it would have been important to the case. They informed her that in her lawsuit, they found that she had cited the Auburn poisonings, and during jury selection, she said she had never heard of the case before, which was clearly a lie, and she would have been ruled out as a juror if they had known all of this. She also caused problems during the trial when she said she had received a phone call from an unknown person saying that Stella had failed a polygraph. This caused even more of a delay during the trial as they tried to sort out what to do with her. I'm just guessing here, but I bet all of the other jurors hated her. The trial was delayed so many times because of her antics, and they all had to come back multiple times over the span of years during all of the appeals to answer questions about this juror. In the end, though, all appeals were denied. Stella claims that her daughter had lied about her involvement in the case to obtain the $300,000 reward money being offered by the drug companies. Cynthia obviously had a rough upbringing, and it showed into adulthood. She struggled with drugs and alcohol and was in many abusive relationships. Many people have speculated how Cynthia knew so much insider information about her mother's plans to not be involved herself. She did eventually collect $250,000 of the $300,000 reward money, and the remaining $50,000 was split between eight other individuals who helped in the case. After the 1982 Chicago Tylenol murders, FDA regulations went into effect which made it a federal offense. Local and state authorities are not, however, prevented from filing charges in these cases as well. Under this law, Stella's crime was prosecutable as a federal product tampering case, and she was convicted not of murder but of product tampering that caused death. The possibility of state charges for the murders of Sue Snow and Bruce Nickel still exists in the state of Washington if she were ever to be released or evidence of Cynthia's involvement came to light. Stella became eligible for parole in 2018 at 73 years old. However, she is still incarcerated at a female-only low-security prison in Dublin, California, east of San Francisco. Her release date is given as July 10th, 2040, which will be about a month before her 97th birthday. Stella's daughter, Cynthia, left town after the trial with her $250,000. She grabbed her daughter from foster care and was never seen again. There have been reported sightings in Orange County, California, but she has never reached out to any family members, including her father or her sister. And that is the case of the Excedrin murders.
next wine that I paired with my true crime is Killer Red Syrah out of the Columbia Valley of Washington. Killer Red Syrah opens with aromas of raspberries and huckleberries with subtle notes of spice and smokiness. This leads to a broad, bright palette of wild blueberry to dark plum with hints of leather and smoky meats. The Killer Red Syrah pairs well with grilled red meats and pork along with more flavorful red sauce pastas. I'm adding flank steak to my click list right now. Cheers and thanks for listening. left corner a pnw true crime podcast if you enjoyed the episode today please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend all of the sources for this episode are listed in the show notes and at upperleftpodcast.com you can follow the show on instagram at upper left corner pod or on facebook at upper left corner podcast if you have a case suggestion or a pnw wine recommendation please email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com Thank you for your support.